What an exciting night it is as we get to step into Ezekiel 16. It's a very long passage of Scripture, and I'm going to try to pare it down as best I can. However, uh, amidst the desire to pare this, ver- this chapter down, I don't want us to miss a bit of it. So we are going to read the entire chapter this evening, all 59 verses of it. I won't ask for us to responsive read or anything like that this evening. I will read it for us this evening and I'll ask you to follow along. You may remain seated. Let's begin by reading Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hitt- an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field, to the loathing of thy person, in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thy hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skins and I girded thee about with fine linen and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thine hands and a chain on thy neck and I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil and thou wast exceeding beautiful and thou didst prosper into a kingdom and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty for it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and pouredest out thy fornications on every one that passed by, as it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and deckest thy high places with diverse colors, and placed the harlot thereupon. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver which I had given thee and madest to thyself images of men and didst commit whoredom with them and tookest thy broidered garments and coverest them and thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them. My meat also which I gave thee fine flour and oil and honey wherewith I fed thee thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savor. And thus it was, saith the Lord God. Moreover thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them? And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth when thou wast naked and bare and wast polluted in thy blood. And it came to pass after all thy wickedness, woe, Woe unto thee, saith the Lord God, that thou hast also built unto thee an eminent place and hast made thee an high place in every street. Thou hast built thy high places at every head of the way and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred and hast opened thy feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and hast increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I have stretched out mine hand over thee and have diminished thine ordinary food and delivered thee unto the will of them that hate thee, the daughters of the Philistines, which are ashamed of thy lewd way. Thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians because thou wast unsatiable. Yea, thou hast played the harlot with them and yet couldst not be satisfied. 
Thou hast moreover multiplied thy fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied herewith. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman, and that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way, and makest thine high place in every street, and hast not been as an harlot, in that thou scornest higher. But as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband, they give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers, and hirest them, that they may come unto thee on every side for thy whoredom. And the contrary is in thee from other women in thy whoredoms, whereas none followeth thee to commit whoredoms, and in that thou givest a reward, and no reward is given unto thee, therefore thou art contrary. Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations and the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them, behold, therefore, I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure and all them that thou hast loved with all them that thou hast hated. I will even gather them round about against thee and will discover thy nakedness unto them that they may see all thy nakedness. And I will judge thee as a woman that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy. And I will also give thee into their hand. And they shall throw down thine eminent place and shall break down thy high places. They shall strip thee also of thy clothes and shall take thy fair jewels and leave thee naked and bare. They shall also bring up a a company against thee. And they shall stone thee with stones and thrust thee through with their swords. And they shall burn thine houses with fire and execute judgment upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot. And thou also shall give no hire any more. So will I make my fury toward thee to rest and my jealousy shall depart from thee and I will be quiet and will be no more angry because thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth but hast fretted me in all these things. Behold, therefore, I also will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God. And thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. Behold, everyone that useth proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is thy, the mother, so is her daughter. Thou art thy mother's daughter that loatheth her husband and her children. And thou art the sister of thy sisters which loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was an Hittite and your father an Amorite. And thine elder sister is Samaria. She and her daughters that dwelt at thy left hand. And thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet hast thou not walked after their ways nor done after their abominations. But as if it were a very little thing, thou wast corrupted more than they in all thy ways. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Neither hath Samaria committed half thy sins, but thou hast multiplied thine abominations more than they, and hast justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. Thou also, which hast judged thy sisters, bear thine own shame for thy sins, that thou hast committed more abominable than they. They are more righteous than thou. Yea, be thou confounded also, and bear thy shame, in that thou hast justified thy sisters." When I shall bring again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, and the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of thy captives in the midst of them, that thou mayest bear thine own shame, and mayest be confounded in all that thou hast done, in that thou thou art a comfort unto them. When thy sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then thou and thy daughter shall return to your former estate. For thy sister Sodom was not mentioned by thy mouth in the day of thy pride. Before thy wickedness was discovered, as at the time of thy reproach of the daughters of Syria, and all that are round about her, the daughters of the Philistines which despise thee round about, 
Thou hast borne thy lewdness and thine abomination, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which has despised the oath in breaking the covenant. It would be a terrible passage of Scripture if it ended there. But one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites is because it doesn't. Let's read verses 60 through 63. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame. When I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. A hard passage of Scripture, but in it a truth which every believer can take, can learn, can understand, and can cleave to in this life. I'm so excited to present it with you. I'd like to tell you the story that underlies this allegory. This is an allegory whereby God takes the nation of Israel and her sisters, Samaria and Sodom, and uses word pictures to personify them in order that He might make a point. It represents a young woman who would marry a loving husband. God being the loving husband, Judah being the woman, Samaria being her older sister, Sodom being her younger. And as I tell you this allegory, we'll see that it doesn't just relate to Israel, but it also relates to you and I. God says that Judah was like a young child who was born And in the day that she was born, nobody wanted her. Nobody cared for her. Nobody regarded her. It says specifically that her navel was not cut. She was not washed in water. It was as if no one even cared enough to clean her up after the birth. And then God describes her as having been cast out. Imagine a child being born not being cleaned up or anything, not being wanted, not being loved, and just being cast out to die. God says He passed by one day and He saw this child laying there in her own blood, dying, weak, unable to sustain herself. And He says, I took you, and I cleaned you, and I nourished you, and I loved you. And you grew. And he says, the time came when you were grown and you were well cared for and you were beautiful. And God says, and I loved you. And I entered into a covenant with you. I married you. And I gave you the best of everything. And I made you beautiful. And I ornamented you. And you were gorgeous and you were well-favored and everyone around you looked at you and said, that is a beautiful woman, a beautiful nation. God says, I gave you all the love that I could. I placed my love upon you. He says, and when you became beautiful, this beautiful woman with all of the tapestries and adornments and your gold and your silver... You looked in the mirror one day and you said, look how beautiful I am. Look at all of the beauty that I have. God says that his wife forgot on that day that it was he who had nurtured her. It was he who had loved her. It was he who had fed her. It was he who had clothed her. It was he who had given her all of the beauty that she had. It was he who had made her beautiful. She forgot that. And she thought the beauty was in herself. So she forsook her husband. The Scriptures say she played the harlot. Anyone and everyone. She was unfaithful to her husband with any man and every man, that being personification of the nations round about. So much so that God says you didn't even act like a harlot 
you acted like an adulterous wife. See, a harlot, when she does services, she gets paid for it. But you were like an adulterous wife. You went and gave favors to people asking nothing in return. You were wicked. You took all of the beauty that I gave you and you gave it to others. You gave it away. And God says, I pleaded with you, but you would not return, so I let you go your way. And you're just like your sister Samaria who played the harlot. You're just like your sister Sodom who was unfaithful to me. You've gone your way. You've destroyed your beauty in unfaithfulness. But God says at the end, nevertheless, I haven't given up on you. I love you still. And I'll restore you. And that is the story that we're going to look at. How would you respond to such actions committed against you? What would you feel if it were someone you loved who had been so unfaithful to you? Let's walk through the passage together and then we'll apply it. As we consider this rather horrifying story of an unfaithful and ungrateful young woman we understand that the allegory is fully intended to reflect the way Israel treated God. Israel was a nation unfavored and unloved. There was nothing that should have brought about their prominence or success. From their early years in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and through Egypt, they were a people without any national advantage. They had no support. They had no homeland. They had nothing to commend them. Verse 5 says that none I pitied them. And yet, when God passed by them in verse 6, He said unto this nation, Live. God loved them. He didn't love them because of anything that was in them. He didn't love them for their virtue. He didn't love them for their kindness. He didn't love them for their beauty. They laid in mire of their own blood, God said, as He found them and loved them. God loved this nation because He chose to love them. He said this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. The Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt that time when Israel was redeemed from Egypt, that was the time that God is describing in this allegory when He took this young woman and married her. The time where she was fully grown. See, love is always a choice. Sometimes that choice is easy. Some people are pretty easy to love. Sometimes that choice is hard. Some people are not easy to love. But love is always a choice. God says He chose to love Israel. He placed His love upon Israel, not because they deserved it, but because He chose to. So in verse 9, He says that I washed thee. Verse 10, I clothed thee with broidered work and I girded thee about with fine linen. Verse 13, He describes these people as exceeding beautiful. God cleaned her, made her beautiful, gave her the best of all that He had, asked her to enter into a covenant relationship with Him, one which God likens to a marriage. The covenant was simple. If you submit yourself to me as a wife would to her husband, I will bless you and give you the finest that this earth physically has to offer. It was a physical covenant. God promised physical blessing to the nation of Israel. What more could a nation want? A man, a God who loves you, who has promised to care for you and asks in return nothing but a reciprocation of the love that He has shown says, I'll care for you. I'll love you. I'll bless you. And all I want in return is your love. But something happened. Once Israel was strong and beautiful and wealthy, Israel looked at all of her beauty and said, look how beautiful I am. I did this myself. I really am something special. Verse 15 says, but thou didst trust in thine own beauty. Verse 22 Thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth. Have you ever found yourself here? 
Have you ever come to this place in your own life where, where you have been on your knees begging God for something? You, you're, at, you're at a low point and God delivers you or blesses you. And one day, you kind of realize that at some point, your mind transitioned from God having blessed you to, wow, I really made it out of that one, didn't I? Wow, I finally pulled myself out of that situation. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've realized that you, you have failed to give God the glory that's due to His name? Or you have taken a circumstance which clearly was God's goodness and somehow attributed it to your own ability or your own strength or your own goodness or your own beauty or your own capabilities? Now, as a pastor, that can be a temptation. As a parent, that can be a temptation. As an employee or an employer, that can be a temptation where one day you look at your kids and you know what, they finally do what you've asked them to do and you say, wow, I might actually be a good parent after all and you forget all of those nights on your knees in prayer begging God to do what you know you cannot. Or wow, this church is finally starting to become something. Wow, people really sp- responded to that message. I must have preached a good one tonight. And you forget that it's the Holy Spirit of God that works in the hearts of God's people and that brings the people in and that builds God's church so that it has absolutely nothing to do with the vessel and has everything to do with the one who's using the vessel. That was Israel. Israel became strong. Israel exerted force in the land that they were in. Israel became wealthy in the days of David and Solomon and they said, look how pretty we are. Look at how much we have to offer. Look at all the great things that I have accomplished. Israel began to look outward. Said, what can I do with all of this beauty and wealth and riches and strength that I have? They began to form relationships with nations that wanted what Israel had, but who could offer nothing in return. Nations that looked at Israel and said, wow, they're wealthy, let's buddy up with them. It's kind of like that friend If you've ever read stories about people that have won the lottery and all of a sudden their friends from years ago start coming out of the woodwork, right? And then the minute all of their money is gone, all of a sudden all of those friends are gone too. It's kind of how it was with Israel. They said, wow, I'm pretty, I'm rich, I'm strong. And all of a sudden all of these nations want to be buddy-buddy with them, to use them, to milk them for their wealth. Israel fell for it hook, line, and sinker their beauty, their wealth, their riches, their goodness, and they began to worship the false gods of these other nations. In their prosperity, they forgot who it was that gave them all that they had. They forsook God. They ignored God. They even scorned God. God says in verse 28, because thou wast unsatiable, unable to be pacified, unable to be contented, you could not be satisfied. The list of Israel's unfaithfulness is long and ugly. In verse 24 and 25, the Scriptures say that they sacrificed on high places. They sacrificed to false gods. In verse 26, they ran to Egypt for help. For this, verse 27 says, God gave them to the daughters of the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were actually abhorred by their wickedness. Can you imagine a nation like the Philistines? Do you remember reading about them or learning about them in Judges and how wicked they were? Worshipping their false gods on their false idols and all of their wickedness. And yet the Philistines looked at Judah in this time and said, wow, they are awful. They were so wicked. And God says, I gave you over to them. Verse 28 describes their lust for fornication as unable to be satisfied. Going from nation to nation Any false god, every false god, it doesn't matter as long as they can worship some idol in some grove or some high place anywhere. They'll worship. Just give me an idol and I'll worship it. Was the attitude of Israel during these days. And because of these whoredoms, God says He gave them over. Consider now verses 32 through 34. God says, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband, they, gave, they give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers. 
Whereas most nations have something wherewith they can benefit a strong nation in order to have a working relationship with them. In other words, typically speaking, it works this way. You've got a nation at the top. They're strong, they're rich, they're powerful. All of the other nations say, hey, because you're strong and rich and powerful, we want to be buddies with you, so we're going to give something to you so that you'll be a buddy with us. Makes sense, right? Well, God didn't even want Israel to do that. God says, I'll give you the riches. You don't have to find it in other nations to buddy up with them. But God says, you were not even like that Israel. You went and you gave them gifts to worship their false idols. You went and committed abominations with them and you gave them, you begged them, you gave them gifts for you to be desecrated among them. It's not like a whorish woman. It's like an adulterous wife. You pursued them to any end. So the consequences. As God describes these consequences in verses 35 through 43, He says this, I will make my fury toward thee to rest. Thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth. The consequences of their unfaithfulness would be great. God tells Israel that He will give the nation over completely to the nations round about. That they will plunder her wealth and remove all of her benefits for themselves. He will allow them to fall into complete desolation, the natural consequences of their own actions. And then, he says, his wrath will be satisfied because they did not remember who it was that gave them what they had to begin with. God describes her sisters in verses 44 through 58 as well. In verse 48, 44 through 48, God compares the acts of Judah with those of the acts of Israel. He calls Israel Samaria here because Israel or Samaria was the capital of the nation of Israel when it had been around. He states in verse 48 that Sodom had not done nearly as much wickedness as Judah. This is Sodom. This is the, the nation, the city, and the, the area around the city that was literally burned with fire for their wickedness. And God says, Sodom did not commit as much wickedness as you have done. He spoke earlier in the passage about how they had given their sons and their daughters how they had, had, had sacrificed them to the false gods. Speaking of that practice whereby they would sacrifice their children on the altar of Molech. Uh, a, a wicked practice that we could liken today to abortion. Where they would kill their children, innocent children, for no reason. God says in verse 51, Neither hath Samaria committed half of thy sins, Samaria, that nation who had gone after the sins that, uh, of, of idolatry that had been characteristic of the days in the wilderness. The false calf worship. You think of wicked men like Ahab and Jezebel and how they led Israel into wicked sins as they led Samaria, the capital Israel, as the nation into those sins. God says, Samaria has not committed half the sins that you have committed. In verse 52, God promises to bring them into captivity and cause them to bear their own sins. He says, Thou also will bear thine own shame for thy sins. They will be recompensed for their wickedness. They will fall into the pit of their own pride. They will suffer the complete consequences of breaking their covenant with God. But as we have come to expect by this point in the book of Ezekiel, and in complete consistency with God's character, His message never ends with judgment. His message always ends with hope. The nation of Judah had forgotten God, but God had not forgotten them. The nation of Judah had forsaken their covenant with God given on Mount Sinai, but God had never forsaken His covenant with them or with David, or with Abraham. And regardless of their unfaithfulness to Him, He was going to be faithful to them. So in verse 60 through 63, God shows His unfailing faithfulness. He says, Nevertheless, I will remember My covenant with thee. Even though you have been unfaithful, even though your actions have been worse than Samaria, even though your actions have been worse than Sodom's, even though you have taken every advantage and you have destroyed every advantage and you have taken all of the beauty that I gave you and you have desecrated it and destroyed it and given it away. In the midst of all that, in spite of all that, I will be faithful to you. 
Verse 62, he says, I will establish my covenant with thee. So here we are again. Hearing the words that we've seen so many times in the book of Ezekiel already. And they shall know that I am the Lord. God will do all of this, he says, to cause them to remember where they began. What God has done for them. And to see them return unto His faithfulness and love, which He still freely offered to the nation with whom He made this covenant of blessing. And this is a promise that once again, God will make a covenant with them. Not a covenant like that of their youth. That would be the Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant based upon their faithfulness. He says, rather, I'll make with you an everlasting covenant. One which we know today is the new covenant given to all those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved from their sins. So God says, I won't make another covenant with you like the one I made with you when you were young. The one that you desecrated. I'll I'll make a new covenant. One that will change your very heart. One that will enable you to obey me. One that will compel you to obey me. One that will change you from the inside out, not just from the outside and then seeking to get in. And on that day, you'll know that I'm the Lord. A new covenant that I'll make with you. An everlasting covenant. As we apply this concept this evening, I want to do so through three points. The first point I want us to remember is that you and I, if you are a born again believer in this room, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by belief on His name, you have been redeemed. Second, Remember that your redemption is your beauty. Your redemption is your beauty. Third, remember that there's always hope with God. There's always hope with God. Let's talk about the points together. You have been redeemed. There was a day for the majority of those in this room where God redeemed you. Now, He purchased you through His blood the day His Son died on the cross. We know the verses very well. Let's remember them together. Romans 5, 6-8. through For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As with Israel and the covenant at Sinai, God's gift of His Son Jesus Christ was not a gift that was rooted in your worth. Jesus Christ died on the cross not for a bunch of righteous people. He died for sinners. He died for you who are a sinner. He died for me who am a sinner. As God looked at Israel and loved this nation because He chose to, So God looked at this world and loved this world because He chose to. And as a part of this world, on the authority of God's Word, I can tell you this. God loved you. God loves you. Not because you deserve His love or have earned His love. He loves you because He's chosen to love you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This love was manifest through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins, so that whosoever will believe on Him will have eternal life. This everlasting covenant of Ezekiel chapter 16. To those who accept this gift, God will place you into His church. A holy nation made up of people who believe. Said in the Scriptures to be betrothed to Jesus Christ as a part of His bride. Unlike Israel, God promises to us no such physical blessings for our faithfulness to Him and for our belief. Rather, He promises us spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But these blessings are no less real the beauty, the riches, 
The honor of being a part of God's church are no less real than the earthly kingdom that God has promised to Israel. The inheritance, the adoption of sons, the eternal life, the resurrected body, the joy of being in the presence of our Lord, the tears being wiped away from our eyes, no more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, the crowns that we will receive for our faithfulness to Him that we can lay at His feet, all of these things promise the spiritual blessings in heavenly places promised to you by virtue of Jesus Christ's sacrifice to those who have accepted it. But it is important to recognize that our redemption is not exclusively a future promise. Certainly we have been redeemed from the future judgment of the lake of fire. Certainly we receive the future blessings and the future rewards of our time upon this earth. But we have also been redeemed from the present power of sin. Literally, you have been delivered from sin's power. Sin has no more power over you. This flesh has no more power over you except the power that you give it yourself. But just like Israel, the promises of God can cause us to be lifted up in pride. To see ourselves as something more than redeemed. And be tempted to see ourselves as the source of our own strength. Before I move on to that, let me just tell you, if you are in this room today and you say, oh pastor, I have never even taken that step. I do not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I cannot remember a time when I have accepted Jesus Christ. I do not know that I'm a believer. May I encourage you to make tonight the night where you settle that. So you need to understand you're a sinner. Your sin has placed you on the path toward a place of punishment known as hell. The just reward, the just payment for your sin. You deserve hell. And the Bible says that there's absolutely nothing that you could do to earn forgiveness, to earn salvation. That all of our righteousness, all of the good things that we could do are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. We could never make up for our offense against Him. And God knew that. And that's why He sent Jesus Christ the perfect man, God in flesh, to do for us what we could not do ourselves, to pay the penalty that we could not pay it. The debt was too high. We could never pay it. We can't get ourselves to heaven. No amount of going to church, no amount of doing good things, no amount of obeying our parents, no amount of giving, no amount of anything can get us to heaven. So God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay what we could not. And so He holds out that gift to us and He says, I've already paid the price if you will but accept the gift. And to those of you who have accepted the gift and to all who would accept the gift, the Bible says you will be saved. Your sins will be washed away. Be made white as snow. Not that we will become good people, but that we will have the Holy Spirit indwelling us that Jesus Christ righteousness will be applied to our account and that we will be freed from the power of sin so that we can do right. And Jesus Christ's righteousness will be applied to us so that we don't suffer the penalty of hell. What must we do? How do we accept the gift? The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Belief, not just to believe that Jesus Christ lived, but to believe that what He said is true. That He is God. That He came to save you from your sins. That He did die on the cross to bear your sins, that He rose again the third day in power over death and over sin and over hell, that He sits at the right hand of God and that if you will indeed accept His gift, He will in faithfulness save you from your sin. If you'll do that this evening, you will become one of the redeemed. Those who we're speaking about those who have been saved, not because of their own efforts or their own good works, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And as I mentioned, we who are redeemed can be tempted to think that somehow we've gotten here on our own strength. That somehow it's our goodness that secures our relationship with God. That somehow it's the things that we do that can make God happy with us. The promise of our future blessings 
blessings so strongly rooted in the promises of God and free from the dangers of hellfire could compel us to live a life of sin rather than a life of obedience. And so, we understand that we've been redeemed. Second, we need to understand that it's this redemption that is our beauty. This redemption is our beauty. See, the problem Israel had is in her pride, she felt as though God was on her side, so it didn't matter what she did. They had, we might say, rich daddy syndrome. I can go out and do whatever I want. If I mess things up, daddy will fix it. I can go and do what I want to do. Daddy will take care of it for me. I'll get arrested, wreck my car. Rich daddy will come and fix it. They said it doesn't matter if I worship false idols. It doesn't matter if I ignore God's commands. God has promised to us blessing. We have a covenant with God and we'll just live it up. We saw this but a few lessons ago as the leaders in Israel said, you're safe in the city. Don't worry about the judgments being proclaimed by Jeremiah. Don't worry about the judgments being proclaimed by Ezekiel. The city is a cauldron and we are the flesh. We're safe here. God has always bailed out the city before. He'll do it again. You know, if we're not careful, we might just have the same attitude about God. Grace is mine, so it doesn't matter what I do. God has forgiven every sin, past, present, and future, so anything I do tomorrow is already covered. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. I have my fire insurance. Now let's go play with gasoline and matches. Really? That's the attitude, isn't it? I have fire insurance. Let's go play with gasoline and matches. And when we do this, when we take advantage of God's grace, it has consequences. We lose out on the blessings that God desires to give us in the life to come. The spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Some of them are secured for us. Other ones are that which comes from living a life of righteousness. We lose out on the blessings of this life that are the fruit of righteousness. It hurts our Father, the one who has redeemed us at the very highest of prices. It spurns the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who paid for our sins with His precious blood. We all know the verses, Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If we have been freed from sin, why should we place ourselves back under sin's power? See, in the eyes of those nations around Israel, what made them beautiful was that they were not like these nations. <laughs> right? They saw Israel. She was pure. She was rich. She was safe. She was healthy. She was righteous. And the Scriptures tell us, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They didn't kill their children to appease the gods. Their God was not pleased with them killing their own babies. They didn't have to do that. They did not mistreat their women. They didn't have to turn their women into sex slaves for the priests. They did not need to amass large armies and build machines of war. They were so unlike the priorities and the desires of the typical nations. They didn't have to stand up on hills and cut their wrists in order to have a good harvest for that year. They were so different. And their beauty was in their difference. Because of these things, God's blessings were upon them. They were a happy and healthy people. Ladies and gentlemen, in the eyes of the world around us, what makes the church beautiful is not that we're like them. As a matter of fact, what makes the church beautiful is that we aren't like them. We don't scramble for material things and get ourselves into large debt simply to fulfill our lusts. We don't lie and cheat and steal to get to the top. We don't dishonor women and our women don't run around willingly dishonoring themselves. We treat people with kindness. We love one another. We're a joyful people regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. We find our worth in something outside of ourselves and are therefore content in whatsoever state we are in. And this is the beauty of the wor- uh, that the world sees in us. This is the beauty of the church to the world. And they want it. They don't always say they want it. But they do. And the question is this. 
Why would we give up our beauty to act, to look, and to live like the world? Satan's great deception in all of our hearts is that we are somehow giving something up when we give up the sinful pleasures of this world. Is that somehow when we give up the sinful pleasures of this world, when we refuse the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that somehow we're losing out on something. That somehow the world is getting something that we aren't. That's what happened with Israel. God says, I gave you all beauty. And you looked over the fence and you said, the grass is somehow greener on the other side. And you thought that because you had built up your own beauty, that you can have the world and you can still have your beauty. And so you went into the world and you gave your beauty away. Church. What makes us beautiful in the eyes of the world is our distinction. When we give that away, when we look over the fence to the world and we say, ah, the grass is greener on that side of the fence, you know what we're doing? We're saying somehow all of the blessings that God has blessed us with in this life, the blessings of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, somehow I conjured that all up. So I can jump over the fence, I can mire in the world and somehow still keep the blessings of righteousness. We're fooling ourselves. And not only are we fooling ourselves, but now we have made ourselves ugly. Just as ugly in the sight of the world as they are. The world looks around them and they say it's an ugly world. And they ought to look at the church and see something beautiful. And they should want it. But as the church lowers themselves to the level of the world and we sound like the world and we look like the world and we act like the world and we have no distinction from the world, the world looks at us and they see no beauty. Why should the world want to be anything other than what it is? Because there's no beauty in the church any longer. That's what we do when we give up ourselves to sin. Satan wants you to think that you are giving something up because you don't have the biggest house or the latest or greatest car or that newest gizmo. Satan wants you to think that you're giving something up when you dress modestly instead of flaunting yourself before the eyes of men. Satan wants you to think that you're giving something up when you fill your time with virtue instead of wasting it among empty amusements. Satan wants you to think that righteousness and obedience is sacrifice rather than privilege. Can you see the deception? Can you see how it is those very virtues that make you beautiful? Can you see that the only beauty that you have in this life is the beauty that's found in Christ? Can you see that the only thing that makes anything in this life worth living is rooted in what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago and that you have accepted by grace through faith? Can you see that without Him, everything that you might amass in this life, all of the attention, all of the riches, all of the goodness, all of the pleasure will burn with you in hell? As I look about and I see this church, it is indeed beautiful. But its beauty is only rooted in what Jesus Christ has done in you. That's it. Don't give it up. Your redemption is what makes you beautiful. Your redemption is what makes the world see the church as beautiful. Redeemed from what? Not just from hell. Your redemption from the power of sin. Your redemption from those petty things that drive the rest of the world. From the materialism. Hopping from one fad to the next fad, looking for something that'll satisfy. Your redemption makes you beautiful. Third and finally, there's always hope with God. Once again, this chapter presents to us a backslidden people. Once again, this chapter shows us a loving God watching as the people He loves scorn Him and ignore Him. Once again, we see a God who promises that even though Israel has not been faithful to Him, He will pursue them in His faithfulness. And regardless of where each of us sits today in this room, whether you find yourself in a right relationship with God, whether you are an unbeliever in a wrong relationship with God, out of fellowship with Him, or in a right relationship with God, 
God will always be there. And until the day we die, there's always hope with Him. Ezekiel 16 is the story of God's relentless love. Why is it so beautiful? Well, I can guarantee you it's not beautiful because of the first 59 verses. It's beautiful because of verses 60 through 63. But 60 through 63 are always there, folks. Those four verses of God's love and faithfulness and unrelenting pursuit of His own are always there. And they're always going to be there. It's the story of God's relentless love to a wayward nation. It's a reflection of God's relentless love toward a wayward world. That eternal covenant. And it's a reminder to all of us of God's love. And the beauty of God that we can openly display to this world when we, as God's people, bask in humble submission to a loving God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Ezekiel 16. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Story of redemption. One day for Your people. Lord, as I think of these points that we've spoken of tonight, particularly that second point. Help us never to think that the beauty of the church is found in anything that we could do. It's not found in our good works. It's not found in our ability to get along. It's not found in our good way we dress. It's not found in our rejection of vices. It's found in our redemption. Lord God, help us never to yield the distinctives of our redemption to the ugliness of this world. Help us never to be so proud in our own hearts that we somehow think that we got us here and that we can sell out to the world without consequence. Lord, help us to love You like You love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.